Hi, I'm Trevor Keegan, and this is Out and Proud. In this series, I talk to four prominent people from the LGBTQIA community about embracing their identity and living their lives out and proud. This week, archivist and activist Sarah Phillips talks about the value of a support network, the importance of gender recognition and trans joy. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on Out and Proud. You're very welcome to the programme. Firstly, looking back, was there a single trans person on your radar, on TV, music, books, wherever it might be, when you were growing up? Because literally, when we started planning for the show, we couldn't think of any. First of all, thank you for inviting me in to have a chat. Um, From my point of view, there was nothing from an Irish context that you could find anywhere. Usually trans people's representation in the media, especially, was coming from the UK. And then it was also usually negative. Um, However, there was some, especially in my teenage years, my early teenage years, you had people like Jan Morris writing Conundrum or you had April Ashley, for instance, and all the trials and tribulations she had gone through. So there were some individuals that you could like go look up to to a certain degree and see that this may be possible. The two examples you cite, not mainstream. I mean, if you look at somebody like, say, Jan Morris, who was obviously an author and well-known and respected author, especially back then, you know, she appears in RTE uh, Late Late Show on uh, 1975. She gets a pretty easy ride of it. It's quite easy going. Uh, there is a little bit of issues around the way gay is approaching it. But also in the newspapers the next day and the next the rest of the, on the weekend, it's actually quite good. It's quite positive. So so there is an understanding that maybe this is possible, that there is some representation out there. But, you know, I was 14 at that point. You know, this was an issue for me that was going on because obviously I was still going through puberty. I had expressed issues around this area back in my much when I was much younger. But I think I also felt I had a practical gene, which I think I got from my dad, ironically, um, because when I would always see things that were going to be difficult, I would step back and go, OK, I'll try and deal with this and cope with this and and just move on and hopefully move to the next level. But for me, I think there was still always that hope that maybe there was something in the future that could, uh, you know, help me or be able to do something about this problem that I had as far as the way I saw it. And you saw because, it as a problem. Yeah, because at that stage, that's the way it was being defined within anywhere you could read anything about it because you weren't, there was no internet, let's face it. It's not easy to find any information. The only place you found information really was either in the newspapers on the television or radio, which was again few and far between. And then lastly, maybe you might find the odd book here or there. But it was very difficult. And usually those representations, as I said earlier, it's been a negative one or a difficult one or life was problematic for people. Um, And they were never always given the respect that they deserved. So if you can't find anybody who represents what you're feeling, you must have just felt completely isolated. Yeah. I was trying to get on with life and, you know, go, do, going through college or school, playing sport, whatever, hanging out with my friends or my family. That was always about trying to just live from day to day, living your whatever's in, in front of you rather than thinking any more about it. But then from time to time, it came back to it. And it kind of came to a head uh, in around early 1977 for me. I go to UCD to see a band who I, at that stage, had been following for nearly a year called the Tom Robinson Band, who were quite a political band at the time and and always have been. You know, they were better known for one song, 2468 Motorway. But 
there was a moment at that gig where I realised there's approximately 600 white male young people, probably middle class back then, standing in an auditorium in UCD singing Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay when it's like, what, 14, 15 years before decriminalisation. And I got empowered by that. So on the Friday night, I went and I actually told my dad how I was feeling and told my dad what I thought about myself. And in fairness to him, you know, he discussed it. He questioned me. We tried to work out where this all went. And he felt, oh, look, we'll find a solution to it. But there was never a solution to change your gender. It was always to try and help you cope with it. That's he still sounds quite progressive, though, sitting and talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I would have always said many parents back then would have probably thrown you out for a statement like that. But I mean, then again, I think, you know, he was always progressive. I think my family and my mum is the same. were always very progressive in the way they saw things. You know, my dad sat me down at 13 and said, look, I'm going to be your best friend. You want to smoke or drink? You'll do it here, not down on the street corner sort of stuff. And we used to sit down every Friday night and talk about the state of the world or whatever. And I think that's what made me think that was going to be okay to sit down and talk about this on the Friday night. And what happened next? Well, the the solution that we were coming up was about me being able to get on with life, about how to deal with me not thinking about it and more about kind of getting on with things that I am interested in rather than trying to focusing on this. And in a way... That's kind of what I did. I put my head down, obviously did my leaving certificate, went to work, studied at night um, and then, you know, met somebody, fell in love, got married, had kids, all that sort of thing. So so constantly you're living what, and I'm putting in inverted commas here, a normal life. But then that niggle, that doubt, that yearning must still be at the back of the mind constantly well, that, or is this kind of put to bed and just rears its head occasionally? No, that, that knowledge that knowledge was always there and it's it's not just raising itself occasionally, it's becoming more prominent over the years as going on. And again, I think one of the key pieces about when you meet somebody and you see a future with them, the possibility of being able to deal with it and cope with it and just put it to the back of your mind that this would help to sustain you. Um, you know, and, and that becomes your focus rather than necessarily, uh, you know, where your gender identity might be. And did you ever indulge that side of you at all? Was any way of to course, have an outlet? Yeah. How? yeah, of course. Well, I suppose initially would have been kind of fleeting moments when I was on my own um, Halloween. Um, and then later into kind of the early 90s, it would have been there were a number of trans clubs in Dublin. So I would have been out and about there. And and again, I, for the, the late 80s, I would have travelled quite extensively for work and therefore I would have taken opportunities to go out when I was on my own in a hotel or whatever to, you know, go out and get changed and go out and spend some time, even a couple of hours, fleeting hours, just walking, those sort of moments. like That must have been so difficult though because you're on the one hand you're having a little fleeting glimpse of what possibly could be yours but then you have to step right back into a reality that's 100% different. Yeah, my, my experience of the early 90s, when I start to meet other trans people, I start to be able to go for a meal with some other trans people to hang out and talk about their experience, talk about my experience. That makes a massive difference. You, you kind of go from being very isolated in your teenage years to taking these fleeting moments, trying to put it behind you from, from month for a number of months or a year or whatever, and then taking those fleeting moments again 
and then eventually finding an outlet to be able to spend more time in your gender identity as as you see it. But I'm thinking of my experience of maybe going to gay clubs when nobody knew I was gay, mm. that they were, they were like little snippets into the world of paradise in my head. Mm. But then to go and ignore that from Monday to Friday or for the rest of the month or something yeah. was not good for me. So I presume it wasn't good for you. No, no. And it, and it was very clear that it wasn't good for me. And it was reflecting then on, say, my work life, my home life, in every, my friendships, all of these things would have been affected by my demeanour, by my mood. Um, you know, I, I've spoken to a lot of people who would define themselves as cross-dressers. And there's a high in the sense of them getting the opportunity to go out. But the next day, that high sustains them then for another week or another two or three weeks or four weeks. Where in my case, this was this moment and you were being put back in the box for whatever length of time you had till the next time. And that was then a problem because you weren't being able to express your full self, you know, who you were and the way you wanted the world to see you either, for that matter. At what point did you reach a stage and go, enough is enough, I can't keep doing this? I think that that probably took a long time to happen um, and it probably wasn't even my thought process. I was struggling with it in my early 30s. It was becoming more obvious that I this was something I needed to do. But by then I had responsibilities, you know, and my knowledge around the trans community at that point was that, you know, quite a lot of the times trans people were not working. They were living on their own. They didn't have friends, family around them. And this is the assumption you have. So by my early 30s, I was trying to realize that this was something I was going to have to do in the future. But it was also something I was trying to deny. There was a conversation that occurred um, between me and my then partner um, because at that point she found out about everything and we had a long conversation. And over a period of about four years, we discussed the situation. Um, and I think there was a moment where we kind of mutually agreed that this was where the future lay for me and therefore we needed to do, I needed to do something about it. And that was about kind of the mid-1990s. So you decide to do that and live your reality. As you say, you had a partner at the time, a wife, you had children. How do you bring them with you on that journey? I think that that's a difficult thing to do, to bring everybody along. Because not everybody sees their role in your life moving forward the way you might want them to see it. It is a struggle for them. However, I think for me, it was really important for me to be able to bring my family along with me, as many individuals as possible. I did not want to lose my connection with my children, for instance. Uh, I did not want to lose that connection with my parents or my brothers, my sister. And therefore, I took a decision that my transition process would not be a one day I'm this gender and the next day I'm the next this gender. Every one of us transitions into who we are through puberty, growing into adulthood. So I saw it in those terms that this was the way I wanted to transition. So I tried to explain to people what was happening and therefore the small changes that were happening in my life as I was moving forward to it was nothing new. You know, moving from 
being very masculine to being a little bit more androgynous to eventually being feminine. They were coming on the journey with me as much as I was going on that journey. So the pace was helping their acceptance. Yeah, to yeah. a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, it it still would have been slightly difficult in the sense that they were still seeing a change happening in me that maybe was difficult for them to understand. But I was trying to explain as I went along what was happening. I mean, that worked for the majority of my family. But, you know, there are obviously there's people I lost in the in, in the meantime. But, you know, I, I still have my children beside me and I still have them very much in my life. And my mom and dad, uh, well, my before my dad passed and my, my sister and my brother, you know, the same. I know I'm very, very lucky in that sense because not every trans person has that. They sound like a strong support system. They are critical. He won't like me saying it, but my eldest son has been unbelievable. He was so, so supportive that he still hasn't moved out. <laughs> <laughs> he might after hearing that. No, he, <laughs> no, won't. he won't. He won't. He, Isn't that just half the battle, basically? It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's definitely when you have your support system around you, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends, and sometimes whether it's your found family, I think it's key to be able to go through on a journey like this that... You have people around you that can support you and be there for you. That's the, the very personal side of the transitioning. What about the professional work? How how did that you fare in that situation? I, I made a, a very specific decision around work in the sense that I wanted to be employed fully. So I went looking for a job. Um, I had always worked in the construction industry across my career. And I felt at that point, even though I had started transition already, that I was never going to get a job as a trans female going into an interview or even applying for the job. So I made the decision to, to apply for the job in my old name, etc. I was obviously given the role. Not long afterwards, I was finding this a struggle. So I went to my then boss and explained to him that I'd already started transition, that, that I was living the rest of my life as Sarah and... I wanted to come into work as I was presenting myself everywhere. In fairness, you know, while he struggled with the idea because we'd become reasonably good friends within that short space of time, he was willing to support me. And I, again, I took that approach of bringing people along um, by saying things like, you know, I do not want you just to send a letter out. This is what's happening. I want to sit in front of my colleagues and explain to them what's happening. And I will be open to anybody who wants to ask questions I now work for them for 18 years, the last 18 years. I'm still there. You know, I've had all of the respect of for who I am within that company for that length of time. The the openness of you assembling colleagues. I mean, what was the response to that? Again, I like doing things in a funny way. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I actually sat them down and, and explained to them that I was going through some changes in my life at the time I'd been dealing with this as an issue since the age of about five or six that more recently I'd been getting some medical care the faces were quite grim at that point um, and then I explained to them exactly what was happening and most of the reaction was oh, so you're not dying <laughs> <laughs> so so on one level you know they were they were kind of very open then to kind of having the conversation and I explained that you know I was willing to have these uh, conversations and and give them the education that they might need to understand it all. But also I, I explained that they can ask me any question, that it was a safe space. It wouldn't mean that I would answer the question, 
but I would explain maybe why that question was maybe inappropriate or why it's not the right thing to say. Any of the questions completely, like totally not acceptable. And then were some of them something that surprised you? At those meetings, no, they were very general. They were, when is this happening? Are you okay? Do you have support? All of those really great questions. Between the two meetings, one of my colleagues rang and said, um, you know, listen, I just wanted you to know I'm here for to support you. Um, but I just want to check. You don't fancy me, do you? <laughs> do you know what? I think anybody coming out gets that question because I've had it from lads that I knew when I came out as well. No, and I mean, I, this is the point. It was this explanation. And again, I, I also tried to be playful with it to a certain degree. And, and the Christmas party was a bit of fun about, you know, because now by now I'd come back to work and people were, were finding the difference between being uncomfortable about it but also then kind of going, yeah, you look great sort of thing. Yeah. And then as, you know, the odd drink was had, things started to relax a bit. That first kind of four or five months was really interesting. Talk to me about having your gender officially recognised by the state. How, how good was that? It was amazing, first of all. That, that was unbelievable because I had spent the previous two years speaking in the media, speaking in, in uh, you know, to politicians, speaking to different organisations where I was trying to explain that, you know, I am a citizen of this country. I'm a parent. I'm an employee of a company that pays my tax. I do all of those things. I should be given the respect for my gender identity as every other individual is. Because let's face it, every one of us chooses our gender identity. Most people just accept what is put on that bit of paper when you're born. So for me, it was amazing. But it was also a kind of unusual moment because a number of years before, when we were talking about this, I was kind of of the opinion, well, actually, you know, I have my documentation. I'm of an age that my birth certificate doesn't matter. But I think that was also at a time when you had to jump through hoops, being diagnosed with a disorder, having lived full time for two years in gender role and also having to go to a panel, a three person panel and proving your transness, which to me always seemed really disrespectful. It wasn't just that the state was recognising our gender identity. It was also that it was recognising it based on our say-so, based on my say-so, that I was being trusted with the point of me saying, this is what my gender identity is and my state, this country that I love, really, really says, OK, we accept that. Because that key piece around self-determination, I think, was what was, was important for me. Everybody should have that to be. It doesn't matter what your identity is. It doesn't matter whether it's your sexual orientation, whether it's your gender identity, whether it is your ethnicity, what. It's your right to say how you identify. And that was what was key for me. That was such an amazing moment. And I missed it. This is the funny thing. Oh, no. I was on, I was at every single debate in the Dáil, in the Shannon over the previous three years, being on the various different campaigns that we were running at the time. And yet, on the day that it passed in the Shannon, I was in the air between Edinburgh and Dublin because I saw it happening in Edinburgh Airport and I was crying. <laughs> All those photographs outside Leinster House that'll be seen in 30 years' time, I'm not even in the picture. <laughs> so it was like, it was hilarious, but yeah. In terms of the world, because trans rights obviously vary from country to country, how is Ireland doing? That's a complicated question to ask and it's also a complicated answer. First of all, I, I spend a lot of time, like I, I'm the co-chair of Transgender Europe, which is the umbrella body for all of the European organisations and Central Asia. And I also work with the International Trans Fund, which is a philanthropy fund across the whole globe, specifically Southern Hemisphere and Asia. And 
I can tell you that we are nowhere near the worst situation. However, why I say it's complicated is that on one level, we have one of the best gender recognition pieces of legislation. And even then, it's not completed because there's still no non-binary recognition. There's no recognition for under 16s. But on the other hand, we've also got voted by TGU the worst healthcare system in Europe. And it is very difficult. It's quite restrictive. It's also quite long uh, waiting lists. Right now, the estimate is up to 10 years. And there is a very difficult process to get through. Worse than when I went through it and nearly as bad as when people went through it in the 60s. So, so on one level, all of those things look weird. If you then look at just societal points, actually as a trans person in Ireland today, I think are, are there problems? There are definitely problems. Are trans people experiencing, you know, violence, uh, discrimination? Of course they are. But then generally compared to most places in the world, actually Ireland is probably one of the better places to live. I think the point is, is that there's different levels of it depending on who you are, what your circumstances are, and also then dependent upon what your needs are. Right? If you're my age, who has a gender recognition certificate, who can traverse life, you know, in, with my job, with my family, all of those extra supports, that is fine. Ireland is the best place in the world to live. And it generally is anyway. But if you're a young trans person living in a marginalised community with very little support and also then trying to access the healthcare system, your life is probably very, very difficult. What would you say to somebody in that situation? I, I think the key piece is to remember there is support out there. Tenny, the Transgender Equality Network Ireland, have a network of 10 support adult support groups out there. We have family support groups around the country. There is resource officers within the organisation that you can reach out to and look for one, some one-to-one help. Also, you have other LGBT organisations like Belong to Young Persons Group and also LGBT Ireland who all have different programmes around trans inclusion. If you can find somebody to support you, I think that's key. Don't be afraid to reach out. Yeah, exactly. And and we do have uh, information about organisations that you can talk to and it can help. It's all on rte.ie forward slash support. I'm kind of reticent to ask this last question because I think I'll probably know the answer. Was it worth it, all of it, in the end? Of course it was worth it. I, mean, I knew I knew the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, look, first of all, are there regrets? Of course there's regrets because not everybody that I might want in my life is in my life now. But then on the other hand, I've got lots of great people in my life that I didn't have before. The, the really great thing is that the world sees me for who I am and I can be comfortable in that. And therefore, I can enjoy all of the other things that I like in life as myself without carrying this burden of who I am uh, and trying to hide it, whether it's playing football with the girls on a Wednesday night or whether it's going to a gig or whether it's out with my friends or family. You know, you can enjoy that. You know, we talk right now about the amount of trans joy that is there. So we don't talk always about the depression or the victimhood or the marginalization. There's huge amount of trans joy when you get that opportunity and you're privileged to get that opportunity to be able to live your life as yourself. Well, it's a privilege to talk to you as well. You have one final task today. <laughs> and I think in your case, it might be one of the more difficult tasks because you are a massive music fan. So we ask all our guests to choose a song to play out with. And obviously it comes down to one song, which is probably in your case, really, really difficult to choose. Or was it? 
No. I would pick one song all of the time and I will be very specific about it. And the song is By The Frames and it's called Fitzcarraldo. And I would ask that you play the version from the album The Breadcrumb Trail. And why this particular song and this particular version? First of all, the song itself uh, was important to me at a particular time in my transition. The lyric of it spoke to me, specifically the piece where it says, my ship was sold right up the river, but I'm not going down. This journey isn't over. It's a long way to the house of Fitzcarraldo. And it just resonated with me. And there's a number of other lines within the song itself. But also the fact that that particular moment when it was recorded, I was in the audience. And it's probably my favourite version of it ever. Let's have a listen. Sarah Phillips, thank you. 